walk through uh, the furniture of the tabernacle, but I, I put here, have you ever assembled something and made common sense generalizations with the instructions? And you know what that means. You look at the instructions, you look at the pile of bolts, nuts, and boards, or whatever it is, and you think, you know what? I pretty much know what I'm doing. And you put the thing together. And you know, many times that works, which is why we continue to try to do this. Um, but when you start to put something together and you realize that the instructions were precise, that there was a reason why you put bolt A in first and not bolt B, and then you have to go try to take it apart. This is my big fear. And you realize that you just did something permanent, that bolt A never comes out ever again, and it wasn't supposed to go in yet. And whatever you bought is never going to be right. And let's say it's a piece of furniture for your kids. I still remember putting together IKEA furniture. And I know it's very simple. Um, I get that. Assembly is not my cup of tea. Uh, I struggle putting the cardboard houses together. We put one for Avery and I had the little babies help me, but I needed extra little fingers to pull things through as we built this on the porch. And they're just loving every little cardboard piece that falls out that's going in the trash. They think is a treasure. And I'm just trying to get them to focus, hold the wall up. And it's just a cardboard wall. Either way, I followed the instructions to a T and it went together and hasn't collapsed on anybody, so it's safe. But when you buy something that needs precision, that has to be done exactly right for it to work. And I, and I want you in your mind, there's two things I want you to think about. As, and, and I want to place us at the end of chapter 24, Moses is going back up the mountain. He's going back up Mount Sinai. He's going to get instructions. Now, we've been given the law. God has given that, and he's given it in a way that, that they're hearing it. And then Moses heard it and told the people. They've articulated the law. God's spoken where they can hear. Then he's spoken to Moses, who's told them that they've committed to this book of covenants. But now Moses is called up by God to go back up Mount Sinai and to get more instructions. And the bulk of those instructions surround the tabernacle and the priests and then how it's going to be accomplished. And this is the time when Moses goes up 40 days, seven days he's waiting for God to call him to the top. Then he's going to be up there 40 days. And when I come back in two weeks, we're going to watch Israel break every covenant they've made. So in 40 days on Mount Sinai, this is the time when God writes the commandments on the tablets of stone. We're going to end with that. These are the tablets that Moses throws to the ground and get broken. This is when the nation of Israel says, man, he's been gone for a month. We've got to find something new. And they're wandering off. But this is what Moses was hearing. So what we're getting right now is what Moses heard from God as he records it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. At the end of the book, you have the execution of what God told them to do. And we close in chapter 40, and we're, we're going to be moving on. And then the next chronological story is Numbers. There is the pause of Leviticus where we have the expanded law. So in the fall, we're going to be diving into Leviticus, but really in the storyline, in the plot line, it goes right Exodus right to Numbers. Leviticus sits there with the expanded law and understand that. We're going to spend the fall on that and then next spring be in Exodus and I mean in Numbers and finish our story. Deuteronomy is your summary. It's your recap of everything. And we'll hit that, keep moving through that, understanding this time in Israel. So Moses is on a mountain, Mount Sinai. He's hearing these things and it's very precise. God wants everything followed to the T. And I want to ask a couple questions before we launch. And you can think out loud here. 
Uh, when I say there's no wrong answer, we won't say you're wrong. How about that on this one? But um, here's two questions at least to think about while I talk through this. And remember, God is going to give very specific details to how he wants it to look, what things are made of, where it's placed, who goes where, who does what. Now, what is the purpose for all those detailed instructions about the tabernacle, priest, and worship? Just think in your mind, why is God being so particular? Why is God being so precise with the tabernacle? And then number two, what could the implication or application be for us today? So as we walk through this, and we're going to move pretty quickly um, through these items, and I'm just going to give you what items and where the verses are and chat briefly about it. But as you work through this, and I hope you'll go back and read through these chapters, what, why would God give Israel such detailed instructions on, on what it looks like and how it's used? And then what are the implications today? And that's the same question I'm asking at the end of this lesson. So process that, and maybe we can chat a little bit and come up with ideas why. I'll give some application along the way, but you're going to journey with me and say, no, we're going to talk about what we can do to apply this. Because at some point, we do need to read Scripture and then at the, at the end say, okay, what does God want, want me to do with this? Because it's there for a reason. Um, so we're going to dive in to the components and then we're going to begin with the instructions concerning the tabernacle. Now, we're going to move from tabernacle to priest. And it feels weird because we're going to go back into the tabernacle to talk about the altar of incense. And you think, why didn't he talk about it when he talked about the tabernacle? And there's tons of critiques like, oh, it was an addition and they tacked it on. And I read one commentator and he had a great wit. He says, don't you think if they tacked it on, they would have put it where it would belong in your mind? What would have fit? It was done that way on purpose because you're going to get the main bulk items and then you're going to go to the priest and the priest is going to burn incense every day to the Lord. And so God brings it back around to something that's in the tabernacle and shows you what the priest is doing. And you kind of end talking about the craftsmen who aren't priests and who don't take care of worship, but are God's people called as a priestly nation, and they're going to build this a certain way, and God's going to work with them. And then actually at the end of it all, God says, make sure you build this by my rules, and I call that the process, and it's keep the Sabbath when you build it. Don't work on that last day just because you're building things for the Lord. Build my stuff my way by my rules. But we're going to dive into the tabernacle, and the instructions begin, though. The first part of it actually begins, and I'm going to keep trying that. It's not going to work. With... And you see it starts on chapter 10, so you're working your way through a lot of things. The Ark of the Covenant starts at chapter, uh, verse 10, but here's the reality. Before any of that begins, God expected the people to do something, and it's one of the things that people make fun of preachers the most about. They're talking about giving, right? Oh, they're preaching on giving again. All they want is money, right? You can say that. Maybe some churches do that. Here's the reality. God started off talking about giving. Make sure that the people give. And he says this, God then says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the patterns of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. That's after God says, Give to this building. And so the whole nation is going to be involved in this. 
We're going to close out with people from Judah and I think from Dan who are going to lead the craftsmen that God's Spirit's going to be a part of, going to work with. And so non-Levites, not Moses, not Aaron, are going to be actually the ones called by God to work. And it's a great reminder to us that our work is used by God for His purpose. But then God says, do this the way I tell you to do it. And he says it, in a, in, and sometimes when you read scripture and he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now you know the purpose. God is going, this is the image of his presence there. He's not contained, but that's him being there. I'm going to show you, and then after that pattern, you make everything. That's how you make it. And God kind of repeats himself on purpose and then gives detailed instructions. And we're going to begin with the Ark of the Covenant. So remember the picture that's an artist rendering of what it is. I'm going to see if it will let me go backwards. Nope. Let me see if I go that way. Yep. I'm very technologically gifted. Uh, you can see the Ark of the Covenant, and this is going to be the mercy seat, and they're two separate things. And you can see there's poles to carry it, how it's built. So we're going to kind of work through this. This is basically 27 inches wide, 45 inches high, 27 inches deep overlaid with gold. The picture of gold is accurate. Everything is ornate, overlaid with gold. And here's the thing, in the tabernacle, and a lot of times people call it the tabernacle furniture, and that's a, not a misnomer, but these are components of worship. This is the key piece. It's going to stand for the presence of God in Israel. However, and God makes this abundantly clear, it doesn't contain God. So other religions will have pieces like this, that they're going to worship their false gods, and they're going to have their God contained in this. God uses the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of his presence. He's never contained in it, and it sits in the holy or the most holy place, holy of holies or most holy, and it's set apart by the veil from the holy place. So as you look at the tabernacle, you're going to see it all in mind. You have this, pretend this is the tabernacle, and the courtyard, and you walk into the courtyard, that's where all of Israel would come, and only the priest is going to go into the holy place, and only once a year is the priest going to go into the most holy place and actually do the Day of Atonement and take care of that. And it's, it's very distinct, and there's movement, right, from common outside to in to God and His holiness, and God is building a visual picture to them to understand, and this is a critical thing, how holy God is how set apart God is, how unlike anything else God is. And the nation of Israel is going to be constantly reminded of that as we go forward. Now, on top of the ark sat the mercy seat. Now, some people say it's all part of the ark. Some people see it as a distinct piece. It's talked about distinctly. And here's what it was. It was a golden slab with cherubim on them and wings pointing over it. And it functioned to enclose the ark, but also was a throne and it was where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. So what you're seeing here is pictured the throne of God. If it pictures the presence of God, and this is his seat, so in essence it is his kingly position, it is also this idea of blood being sprinkled, propitiation, and you look at Jesus Christ, and he is our Savior King. He is the sacrifice and the ruler, right? And so it is constantly picturing how God is going to redeem us. His plan of redemption is, is played out in front of us, and they're seeing that over and over again. Day of Atonement, this is the, the priest is going in, the most holy, approaching 
what would be God's presence. And on that sat the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is his throne, but it's also where we sprinkle the blood. And you're seeing God function in a way that's unique from any other God that's out there. Because not only is he going to rule, but he's also redeeming. And so they're going to see that picture played in front. So I put as the picture, it pictured the throne of God in a place of propitiation. We move then, and we're going, and I'm just kind of move quickly because I tend to run out of time. So I know I'm talking fast, and I'm leaving the scriptures here. If you want to note something, you can kind of box this in, because I think when you read these chapters and you don't break it out, it's like, what in the world are they talking about? But if you break it out and kind of have the picture in your mind, you start seeing that it's not as complicated as it sounds. Everything has a lot of rich details, a lot of measurements, a lot of what it's been made of and why. I'm trying to give you the overarching picture and then you can kind of see where those components are and get some of the details. So now you go to the table of bread and that's 23 through 30. And, and this sat on a table. This is the bread sitting on a table overlaid with gold again. And here's the thing. Depending on who you are, people have different viewpoints, but kind of the standard is the table of bread pictured God's provision. Everything that's in the tabernacle is to focus Israel on God and what he does. In the most holy of places, we see a ruling God and a redeeming God. We see him atoning and we see him reigning. You walk in the entry point and the incense, look, they're going to burn incense every day. The priest is going to be in the holy place every day, day and night. Incense lighting the lamps. Incense lighting the lamps. There's going to be constant. But as you pass by the the bread, it reminded Israel that God provided for them over and over again. Now, we live in an affluent nation. Will we agree with that? And I'm sure everyone's heard that. And so as bad as it is right now, and I think eggs have gotten kind of ridiculous here. So if you know someone raising chickens, start begging eggs off of them, all right? Because it's, it's, it's worth it now. It's like chicken people, you're like, oh, they're chicken people. Now you're like, hey, they're chicken people, you know? That's where it's become because I think it went from like 240 to like eight bucks now. So eggs are worth it. That's why I'm coming over to your house tomorrow. See how many eggs I can get. Just kidding. <laughs> um, the, the reality is this. I've lost my train of thought. When we live in an affluent nation, right, and as bad as it's going to get at times, and we're going to say $8 eggs, man, I don't want any more eggs anymore. But we can afford our food as a general principle, right? In this nation, I know there's hunger in this nation, but as a general rule, we're affluent enough that we're not sweating the next meal. What happens when you don't sweat the next meal is you think you provided that meal, don't we? Because after a while, I think that, hey, we can buy the food at the grocery store because I work, I get a paycheck, and notice who I'm talking about here. I get my paycheck, I get this, and Heather and I can then go. And what do we tell the kids all the time? Because you have teenagers, and it's so much fun to say this. Hey, you're eating my food, you're living in my house. You just constantly remind them that they own nothing, because I think it's good for teenagers. You are at the bottom of the totem pole. You think you're at the top, you're not. You know, you're, you're just a peon, you know? It's, it's great. Teenagers got a lot of high self-esteem, you know? That just pops right back up, right there. But what, what it, what's interesting is, even as Christian parents, what is our temptation? What do we tell them all the time? I paid for it. I bought that. Don't waste that milk. I paid for that milk. Be careful. 
And it's interesting because I think about it, we all need to be reminded that what we breathe is from God and what we have to eat is from God. And see, the nation of Israel had this whole table and it constantly, you imagine you're a priest and you're walking in, you have to change that bread every week and you're walking in and you know that is God's reminder that he provides for you, that you don't provide for yourself. Now you keep moving on. It's located in the holy place. I look at it this way to the right. So you kind of go in. Then we move to the opposite side of the holy place and we come to a lampstand. And that is 31 through 40. Now there's a relief. Uh, so I think it's Titus. He wasn't an emperor at the time. General Titus, I believe it is, or starts with a T. He's the son of an emperor. He sacks, he sacks Jerusalem and he takes so much stuff. And actually, one of the ways we know what some of these things look like was by the, uh, it's called a, a victory arch that they put in, and you can see how they carve it. What's fascinating is when you look at the lampstand, it shows multiple people carrying the lampstand. And so it tells you, like, we think candle, like, hey, here's 12 candles, and I can hold it with one hand, and it's no big deal. And then we're showing Roman soldiers, and it takes four of them to carry this lampstand. Here's what we can kind of deduce from that. This was no small little lampstand. This was a significant lampstand. It was, it was, and now when you look at the curtains, by the way, there's four different layers that go over the, the tabernacle. And so it's not super light in there. And they burnt the candles. They burnt the lampstand. And by the way, it's not wax candles there. It's oil burnt in there. They would burn it from dusk till dawn. They, they always had the light going. And we're going to talk about the different oils. So I want you to realize it is, it is heavy and it's sitting in the tabernacle and it pictured God's light for the people. And it's a great pointing to Christ who is, and we say this all the time, the light of the world. It was made also with shapes of branches, with flowers and blossoms. It's not just some, you know, have you get candlesticks from people? It's a big chunk of metal and you jam a candle in there. You're like, oh, it's pretty. It's a big chunk of silver there. And, and, and it can be, right? This was ornate. This, this showed extensive craftsmanship. So it's beautiful, and it pictures flowers and blossoms and things coming to life, and again, it pictured life. So think light, and also think life. And then you again point to Christ, who gives us what? Eternal life. And so the Israelites were constantly reminded that God is the light and life, and without him, you have no life, and you have no light. John 1, 4 says this of Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And your lampstand, actually one of the, the key points is pointing to the ministry of Christ. It's pointing to what God does. And it's that idea of light, illumination, think mental, and then life even being alive. The bread is provision, right? It's almost a very physical feel it's like, the, it's like the practical side of life, right? But the lampstand is the light, illumination, and the idea of having life. And it's there, and it's lit, and it, and it constantly tells them how they function. You think, man, God is beating that into their heads. And then the question is, do we need that beat into our heads? Because we instantly want to say, I'm self-sufficient. We live in a world that says we're good enough as you are. And God is actually telling them, you desperately need me. And the world sees that and they say, 
What a dictator God. And we know God in his mercy is telling us we need him. And he's reminding Israel in their worship as they walk forward. Now, the instructions move to the outside coverings. And, and look, we're skipping the altar of incense, and I explain why, because when we do the priest, it's going to be a functional thing. So now he goes to the curtains, and look, there is a lot involved here that you can dive into. Tom, I know you've done a lot of research on this. It's very fascinating. I'm just going to give you the overarching look. Inner curtains, second curtains, outermost coverings, ramskins dyed red, and as a lot of times they'll say sea cows or what that would be made of. Understand this, curtains, four layers, all of them distinct, all of them functioning in a different way. All of these curtains are held up by the framework. Now, how do you build this? How do you build it and take it down, build it and take it down? And I'm kind of moving quickly through those two things and we're getting to the different veils or separations that come in. So when you talk about the veils, and that's 26, 31 through 37, the main veil, and, and this is the one from the holy place, the most holy place, um, it is the only use of the word signifying that veil. So it's a very similar word to curtain, but in Hebrew, it is unique. So God uses a different word in their language to describe the veil that splits the holy place from the most holy place. Now, in this section, this also talks about the curtain described as a barrier to the outside. So it, the veil, the reference to veil or curtain, and again, the word for veil used for the holy to most holy is a unique word, still means curtain, but it's different than all the curtains we've been talking about. Then we look at the entranceway. Because look, as Israel walks into the courtyard, and I'm going to keep walking here, here's the courtyard, they don't get to stare right into the holy place. They don't walk into it. They don't come stand and peek in. They don't open the curtain to see what's going on with the priest. They don't enter that portion. So that is also a block for them. And so they're in the courtyard, and the priest would enter that veil, that entrance curtain on the east, going in back towards the west. And so there is a constant reminder as they get closer to God and his set-apart holiness that that was not for them. It was set apart. And it's not because God was making an exclusive club. As um, Bernard Ram notes, he says, what he was teaching was a principle of access. There was a need to make a distinction that, that needed to be understood. It needed to be visible and physical so they understood the seriousness of approaching God that there's weight behind it. This all conserved or, or protected in their mind that they don't make the worship of God and the approach to God something casual. We are plagued with the casual today. Worship is constantly pushed towards casualness because we want an approachable God, which we have a God that can be approached but we want to approach him in our cavalier and casual manner. We want to tell God how we're going to hang out with him. That's why I've said it over and over again. And oftentimes I hear from multiple people, oh, this song from this guy or this girl singing about sitting down with God at some restaurant or some bar. And I'm like, ridiculously sinful. Why is that? Because it doesn't follow what God said. You don't approach God that way. 
He doesn't sit hanging out with you at the restaurant. That's not how you approach God. But we want to tell God, that's how I want to approach you. God told Israel over and over and over again, you don't approach me this way. And if you do, you die. Talk about seriousness. I think we'd have a lot less country songs if they had walked into the tabernacle and realized that's not how you approach God. It's convenient because we, and I want you to realize this, and I'm not trying to pick on this or the artists or the people that like it because I know they res. oh, that resonates with me. It doesn't matter if it resonates with you. It's wrong. You're grabbing God and pulling him down. And God says, you don't grab me and pull me down. You don't pull me to your level. And understand the tabernacle was beating that into their head because we are as stubborn as they are, or they are as stubborn as we are, and they needed a constant reminder. So that's what the veils did. It conserved the holiness of the tabernacle, the holiness of God, and it conserved the correct approach to God. So now we move to the outside courtyard, and we're going to talk about the courtyard, but now we talk about the altar. Now there's the altar of incense where they burned incense, and we're going to talk about that after the priest, but now we move out into the courtyard. Now this is where all the people could come, the outer courtyard. And in the center of that, so think of the the center of the tabernacle, the key piece is the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, his throne, and his, his atonement. Now you come out, what is central to the people is the altar, bronze altar. Interesting, when you read about it, it says it's bronze wrapped in wood, and so a lot of people say, yeah, but when you light a fire, they would burn the wood, and some people say it was hollowed out, and they filled it with earth, and that's where they would offer the sacrifices. You can dig into that and keep going through the weeds how much you want, but basically there's a bronze altar there, and all the burnt offering was offered right there. So if you're an Israelite and you walk in, you see the altar. You see sacrifice. You see propitiation. You are reminded that you have a payment for sin, that there is, there is a cost to it. And this is what every Israelite would enter. They would bring their sacrifices. Now, just for a second, you read the sacrifices. This was a bloody area. Right? There's, it's not, you know, every picture shows one, three Israelites and one cow, right? It's like every picture of Jesus teaching. It's like 14 sheep, three people, and Jesus on a hillside. It's green, and it looks like it would be a wonderful place to have a picnic. When there's 10,000 people, utter chaos, businesses all around, total different picture. Remove the one cow picture from your mind and for a second walk into the courtyard and recognize that two million people are going to be processed through there. I want you to think about if you have to offer an animal every time your son is born, a firstborn son is born, how many firstborn sons are born in the families and you start breaking it out? I don't work at the, um, the um, Culpeper Hospital. I don't know how many babies are born on a daily basis, but our population is 30,000. Two million. And so how many offerings are offered on this altar? And I want you to realize there was a lot of dead animals and they're burnt offerings. What is a burnt offering? That means it's burnt completely up. It doesn't smell great. It is a constant reminder of the cost of what? Sin. When you get to the altar of incense, and we, we see that the priest is burning it. Why? Think about it. It's offered to God this incense, making inside the tabernacle not smell like the outside 
courtyard. And in yet another sensory separation that's put in place and the need to constantly burn incense. So here we are to the altar and then the courtyard is described because it is again levels of separation, all showing seriousness of approaching a holy God, the seriousness of precision in worship. That's not because we follow some man-made rules, but as we come to approach God as a church coming together, then we are coming to worship God, not walk away with an experience for us. So as God dictates in the New Testament, that's how as a church we come to God. That's why I can say with confidence when someone says, wow, you know, I don't worship God at church, but I worship him on the mountaintop by myself. And I say, that's not worshiping God. Why not? Why is that? Because he's mandated how he wants to be worshiped. And he's told us in the New Testament exactly how he wants to be worshiped. Now, there are varying ways that that is accomplished. Thus, there's variety there. But you can tell if something's biblical worship and not by how it is approached and if it follows the mandate of what God wants or appeals to what man wants. When I hear people say, yeah, I love going to worship at that place. I feel so good when I walk out. It's a great experience and the guitarist is so neat. I'm all for a guitarist playing well. But when you walk out talking that way, I know you haven't worshipped. You went to a concert. You enjoyed yourself. But that wasn't worship. I can guarantee you that every component of bringing an animal to watch it get killed and burn in front of you was not enjoyable to you. But it was functional for worship. It was what you were supposed to do. I'm not saying that's why we weave in boring parts of the sermon. I'm just saying that's just, that's the reality. We worship, and that's as a church, as we come together, we want the lost to come worship with us. But when they walk through the doors to come worship on Sunday, we're worshiping. They're observing worship. Actually, that is the biggest testimony we have, is our worship of God, our love for each, other, for each other, and as we worship and love God, that's how we display it. And so there's seriousness to all of this. And now we go, um, we, we're going to move through this section before, and, and the next section is going to be on the priest, and I'll click my little, well, I'll keep trying the same thing, the priest. And we're going to kind of work through the priest a lot about what he wears his consecration, and then the cycle of his worship. And it's going to close out talking about how we're, we Israelite people are going to bring the best oil for the lampstand and the best incense to burn on the incense altar. It's going to involve them again. It starts, and, and I made the joke about constantly talking about giving, but I want you to know that the instruction started for all the people. How are they all involved in worship? And God says, I want you to give. And then he's going to be talking about the priest and what they do and how are the people going to be involved. They're bringing the oil and the, and, the, and the incense and they're going to bring the best and that's going to be used and burnt before the Lord. And so they're going to have a participatory role there. And at the end, actually, he's going to show all these craftsmen coming together to build these things and then remind him to do things his way. And I'll keep an eye on the watch here to make sure I don't run out of time. But here you got precise details on administering all this and the garments get involved. And look, it, it, it can get complex. I want to read this, Exodus 28, 4. It says this, And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a miter, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now God 
in his drive for distinction, holiness, the tabernacle. Now, the person who will administer this is given very specific instructions on what he is to wear. And how does God describe his garments? They are what? Holy. They're set apart. They're for his worship. As the people see the high priest, they know he is dressed as God would want him dressed. The priests approach God on the basis of others, offering the sacrifices brought as the people both acknowledge their sin and sacrifice to God for those sins. This constant offering is going to remind them of their need. The most emphasis now on priestly function is given to the high priest, uh, but that high priest foreshadowed the great high priest, Jesus, who comes to stand in our place, giving himself a once-for-all as our sacrifice. But he's our sacrifice, and he's our high priest. So the high priest points constantly in the Old Testament to the fulfillment of the high priestly role permanently in Christ, making way for us into his presence. I want you to realize something. The high priest has special garments, special office. He's the only person once a year that's going to walk into the most holy place. No one else goes in. The priest has a plethora of check marks he has to go through before he'd even dare to walk into the most holy place. No one else is walking in there. To put blood on the altar... For atonement, Christ dies on the cross, and what is torn? The veil. That's the veil. That's symbolic. It's, it, it was telling every Israelite something. You're not even supposed to look in there. When the ark is moved, I was reading in my scripture, reading the ark is moved from the Philistines, and, and one group of people, one town, looks in the ark, and they die. God kills them. When the veil is torn, you're looking now at the ark, that if you used to look at it, you would die. And God rips the veil because Christ just almost in, in perfect fulfillment, now you can approach God. You, you are given a, an opportunity. We view it as a right. And he's now made the way. And so then what follows in 29, 1 through 37, is the consecration of the priests. And I want again, you'll read through these uh, at home, or if you speed read, go right now. It's a detailed account of washing, anointing, and sacrificing. Listen, they had a sacrifice for themselves before they could even sacrifice for the people. Why? Why do they need to do that? Because they're, they're sinners. And they need forgiveness. And you know what God is, is, if you're the people and you watch the high priest sacrifice for his own sins, what are you not going to think the high priest is? He's not God. He's not, he's not a replacement deity. He is a sinner just like me. He needs sacrifice to walk through it. All these steps tell them again, God is seriousness, uh, serious about his holiness. It's all emphasized the need for holiness, a constant reminder of who God is, and now what he considers the legitimate steps required to approach him. And then, this is a one-time consecration. It takes seven days. It's involved. Then you come to what I call the cycle of consecration, daily consecration. Now, the priest has to consecrate himself every day, which is a reminder about dealing with what? Sin. sin. How often do you sin? Daily. 
and the cost of sin, and it's left in your mind. If you sacrifice every day, and you're reminded that you need God for forgiveness of sins, how important is it to God? I'm going to ask a question here. And again, I want to make a note because the world constantly does this. This was not meant as a bringing down or a guilt trip, right? It's not God saying, oh, you're, look how, it's not trying to manip, it's not manipulative. It was redemptive. It was, it was pointing. Uh, it centered them. It reminded them of what God does and, and for us what God has done. So I want to make a straightforward application here. Don't answer out loud or answer out loud however you want to do it. How often do you think of what Jesus did for you and its implication for your behavior? So how often do you think of what Jesus did, the sacrifice? Now, why did he have to die? Because we are what? Sinners. So his death is directly related (coughs) to my sin. And then how often do you think of that? And then how often do you connect that to how you behave in your life? And here's the should be. If we're going to take the principle from the Old Testament and transfer it forward, and we're going to say, how often should I do it? They did it twice a day, morning and evening. The priest was reminded that he's a vile sinner and he needs a sacrifice for his sin, that he needs God. And that was to change and shape what he did all day and what he did all night. Now, how often should we be putting ourselves, not as a manipulative guilt trip, how often are we reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us, our need, and then does it shape our behavior? God had them doing it twice a day. And I'm driving to this idea of daily how if you will think of Christ and what he's done and your need and how that, how that is, you're, you're eternally dead without him, not as a beat yourself down and God wants everyone to be crushed under his thumb, because that's what the world says, but instead this was done so people would focus on him and not on themselves. Exactly. So we apply the same principle on the daily consecration. We understand the need to be reminded that we need Christ. There is a little too much or way too much of the, I'm saved and now I can do whatever I want. God will just forgive it. And it's a, it's a manipulation and it's a wrong application of what God told us to do. He's told us to think about him and then let that shape my behavior. I'm saved and so therefore I don't do and I do do these things. And I've talked about the Puritans before because one of the things they did so well, it's why, why if you actually read their poetry beyond what maybe school literature gives you, but dive into their writing, there's a depth to what they write about because they thought about God in their everyday life. How many of us think about God in our everyday life and how we do our job and how we function, how we interact with people, how we respond? How many of us have the, the idea of being a redeemed sinner How much does that shape what we do? How we respond to our kids? How we respond to difficulty? And that cycle is a reminder. Now, the teaching is going to shift again. 
and it's going to go to more of the function side of things. So the priest is going to be dressed a certain way. He's going to be consecrated. He's going to do daily consecration. And now the story moves and God's instructions move, and it's going to list some components that are there, but in light of what the priest does. So we come to now the altar of incense, chapter 31 through 10. And so we move back into the tabernacle. So just walk with me. We've, we've walked through the tabernacle, most holy, worked our way outside. We've talked about the guy that's going to be functioning and taking care of stuff and working his way back into the tabernacle. And now we start talking about some of the things he's going to do. And we come all the way back to the holy place and to what most people think is the incense, altar of incense, placed, I wouldn't say directly in front of the veil to the most holy place, but that's the implication, dead center, that he's going to come and he's going to burn incense there. And it's a constant burning as a continual sacrifice. And Aaron would offer continual sacrifices to the Lord. And by implication, other parts of the priesthood would be there doing some of this function as well. And so again, a reminder of the continual nature of our worship. Then God shifts in 11 through 16, and we have this this counting linked to giving, an atonement fund. Here is a head count, so to speak. And this then, and this is what I find fascinating, as you're looking at the function of the priest, this set-apart people with cool, unique clothes used for God. God says, burning incense constantly to me, and then his instructions come all the way back around to every Israelite. Now we're counting heads, and we're getting a total, and it's reminding them of something. All of you are God's firstborn. Now, if you were the firstborn in your family, your, your parents paid an offering because you were the firstborn male in your family. You were atoned for. But now God is reminding them that when he talks about Egypt, why did he kill them? Go, let's go all the way back to the plagues. The firstborn is killed because you have plagued what? My firstborn. Talking about the whole nation of Israel. And so we go from this unique group, the Levites and the, the, the family of Aaron, and now we're going all the way back to all the people, reminding them that they're all God's firstborn. And so they're going to now give an atonement offering. And here's what's interesting, as a reminder of their belonging and their connection. And I think that's an interesting thought. How giving can connect, not in an ownership way, but in a sense of belonging. So God has the nation of Israel now participating in an atonement fund or a firstborn type of giving. They're counted and they're giving for this. And he uses this to remind them that they are his children, his firstborn. All of us look at giving in a different light oftentimes, right? It's something we skip, check off, or worship in. And God's saying you worship in this. Have you ever thought about how your gift to God is a manifestation of your belonging to him? You're not buying ownership in God. You are expressing what is the reality. And that's what God's asking the people to do here. In their giving, they're going to walk away from that, not with, man, I'm short a shekel. They're walking away saying, I participated in in a real way in something that brings me 
It's an emotional sense, belonging. I'm part of God's firstborn. And it's a participatory side of worship, not a fleecing the flock style. What does the world see when they see this? Oh, look at God, wanting his half shekel again, or shekel, I can't remember, they switch back and forth. I want my money, I want... No, it's, it's actually a beautiful picture of belonging and connection. Now we move to this thing called the basin, or laver. And this is a bowl full of water that the priests, and I call it a practical piece, the priests would wash in preparation for their ministry. What does that say? When you wash your hands, what is God emphasizing? Purity, cleanliness, holiness. So as you're watching the priest getting ready to offer the burnt offering and he has to go to the bowl and wash his hands and then do this, and he washes his hands. It's also pretty practical, right? If you're killing animals and putting them on a burnt offering, your hands are getting getting dirty. But it's also a visual representation of cleanliness as they serve God. Now, it's hard to think of a lot of animals dying, right? Who here likes animals? Who here loves animals? I mean, it's like, wow, it's a passion, right? Does sin cost something? What does sin cost? Death. And so you think, well, how, how many animals does he need? Oh, it's not that God needs all this. We need to be reminded of the cost of sin and then the need for a cleanliness. And then we come all the way back in the function of worship to, I call it the oil, but it's oil and incense that's offered there. God expected the best from the people and the best to be used for lighting the candles and for burning on the altar of incense. And I put here the best. Is that what we give our Lord? Do we give the best? Because that's what he wanted. He said, I want the best. I want the best oil, the, 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 the premium oil, because it's going to burn the best. And I want the best incense to be burned for me. We typically give what's left over. And see, we, we have money is one of those interesting things, or cash, right? Because one dollar is the same as the next dollar. And so it doesn't, we don't see the significance of the best. When you live in an agricultural society, there is the, the first fruits. I was reading about strawberries, which I'll fail at, I'm sure, this year again, but I'm going to give it a go. And I was reading about the thing called the king strawberry. The first flower produces the biggest fruit. So in the context of strawberry farming, and I'm not a strawberry farmer, I've already killed 20 plants, right? Just planting them in dirt, I killed them. Um, that's what a degree in horticultural different tech. Uh, it, it's really helpful. Uh, there's, <laughs> maybe if I applied what I learned, then I wouldn't have such problems. I'm, I'm pig-headed. I'm like, they're like, everyone says test the soil. I'm like, you know what? We'll just give it a go. You know, I can only drive 20 minutes and get any testing equipment I want. It's too much effort. Just plant it and see what happens, um, which is breaking all the rules. Either way, in the world of strawberries, and the first fruit produces the biggest fruit, the sweetest fruit, in that context, if I'm reading strawberry lover books that I was reading through, then I would give God the king's strawberry. What will we do with the king's strawberry? Eat it. Eat it every single time. Without a doubt. I know everyone in here, including me, would eat the king's strawberry. And not even think twice, because we'll give God a strawberry. Does he seriously want me to waste the king's strawberry on him? I mean, he's not going to even eat it. If he wants a king's strawberry, he can make one right there. Boom, he's got it. I might as well taste the king's strawberry, because he can get one on his own. You see the mentality? They were told, give the best, the best of the oil, the best of the incense. 
What, so the priest can light it in a tabernacle and no one sniff it at all? Why don't I light the best incense in my house and just burn some sage up in there? That'll cover the stink of the cattle that are dead. Do you see the mentality, how quickly we can make it very materialistic and feel like it's a waste to give God the best unless we can justify that God enjoyed it the way we thought he should enjoy it? But the Israelites were told, give him the best, period, done. Best oil for the lamp. We don't want it sputtering. We don't want smoke. Because, by the way, the best oil doesn't kick off smoke. The worst oil does kick off smoke because they're byproducts of the olives, and so it gives off smoke. But the purest oil gives no smoke. Why is God so picky about this? Why does he want the best? The best. That's the question. Is that what we give our Lord? Because that's what he's asking from them. Then we go on, and I call this part um, the gifting, (laughs) 31, 1 through 11, how he gifts people. This is the practical side of all these specs where individuals gifted in accomplishing them. Have you ever had like a vision in your house? Not a vision, not a legit vision, but I'm talking you are in your house and you think, man, uh, beams would look good here and I would love to have an artistic rendering of wood here. And then you think DIY, go to Lowe's, buy the wood, buy the saw. That's a reason to get the saw, buy the tools. I'm going to cut the wood. You start building it and it doesn't look right. And you think to yourself, I'm not good with wood. You thought you were, but it looks terrible. What do you typically want when you're coming to put together that masterpiece, that, that design in your home that's going to look a certain way? What do you always want to hire? Professional. Professional, a craftsman. Now, I'm even pickier. I want a craftsman slash art, artist. There's only certain people I have come in my house because I don't just want you to cut it straight. I want you to have some... I want you to have real craftsmanship to me has art involved in it. And so I want that in my home when I'm building something. So I don't do a ton of projects I'd love to try because in the end I know that I'm not going to like what I build. It's going to be about 60% of, of what I want. I want that precise detail. And God wants precision and so he gifts craftsmen to handle this. And not just these two guys that are listed here in 31, but he says other people will be gifted along with them and they're going to lead and they're going to make this. That lampstand with the ornate blossoms and branches and flowers, that is made by somebody and it isn't a priest. It's not, God says, I'm going to gift the Levites, they'll take care of this. No, he gifts a guy from Judah. I think it's a guy from Dan. And then a host of other people are going to be gifted to make this And I love it here because here the craftsmen and artists express dedication, consecration, and worship doing what they're gifted to do. And I don't think, I'm looking at the name because I always mispronounce these guys. Um, Yeah, the guys that are building there because I'm looking and I'm like, yeah, let's not give it a shot. Um, I don't think this guy's walking along saying, man, I like to throw rocks in a pond and then bam, I can make candlesticks, right? I think this guy made candlesticks, work with gold, and then God uniquely gifted him to use that and so he used what he had already given them in a in a perfect way they're going to make this and I, I put here your work your gift or giftedness is to be used in his service and for his worship and i love that god comes back to all the people yet again and he doesn't talk now about how the priest is dressed and how he waves his incense that's all very important but he ends with the people And he says, you're going to be gifted to make the things for me. Use what I've given you for my glory. And that's where he talks about them. But you can't miss, and this is the final idea, he closes this out with the process. Um, 
you can call it the guidelines. Here's the work, though, did not take precedent over his worship and his rules. Work six days and rest the seventh. Don't change the rules to build for God. Don't, and I've seen people, if you, if you ever heard this expression, the end justifies the means. If you want to know that that's an unbiblical statement, here it sits. God says, don't make the end, the tabernacle, justify your means of disobeying my law and doing the work on a day I told you not to work, that I told you to set apart for me. And so God is reminding them, and don't get caught up in the idea of just the Sabbath, but God is saying, do things my way. Don't make an end justifies the means conclusion. That's not a biblical thought. Do it the means I told you, and the end will be what I want it to be. The chapter now closes with the tablets of Ten Commandments. This is when they get carved into stone. There's two of them, by the way. They're not hinged with a beautiful hinge and opening and closing. Two stones. Uh, Moses, though, was still as vigorous as a guy can get. I don't know how heavy the stones were. So I don't think it was a two-inch slab of, of granite he's hauling off the mountain here because there's no miraculous strength giving. I think it was a normal-sized tablets. Some people think this, actually, and I think this is fascinating. Why two tablets? And some people, and one commentator read, said it's actually duplicates because in a covenant giving, the king would take a covenant and the people would take a covenant. But in God's reign, where is the center of worship for God? It's in the people. So his portion of the uh, Ten Commandments and the people's copy came together to be in the same place because it wasn't a vassal people and a king. It's his people. I don't... Again, that is a thought I want to throw out there. It's not written in Scripture. And God's copy was on the right, and, and the people's copy was on the left, and Moses threw the people's copy, then God's copy. It doesn't say that. It's just talking about what was often done, and it is somewhat symbolic to think of it all coming together, and that's there. These are the, the, the ten words that God gave. It's not all this carved on stone. It's the ten words. And these are the ones that Moses are going to chuck, and it's going to be broken because... Let's just be honest, Israel's going to be disobeying God in less than 40 days. They're engaging, and let's be honest, in rampant partying, immorality, and idolatry, just wickedness. Perpetuated by Aaron, who accidentally threw gold in a fire and out came a calf. He could be a millionaire, right? Boom, throw it in, I made that, you know? (laughs) The logic is, is astounding with him. What's the application? Let's go back to the questions I asked. What is the purpose of detailed instructions about the tabernacle, priest, and worship? Why does God give detailed instructions? What are some reasons? To do it his way. To do it his way. So we don't, uh, we don't tell him how to worship, he tells us how to worship. Exactly. Obedience. To sanctify the, himself from the other gods in the area. Too. Yeah, to make sure they understood exactly who he was. He is not like any other. He's not one of God's. He is the only God, and the nation of Israel would know that. Now apply that to us. How do we apply that to today? What are some applications? He's the only God. No. When God works and words, um, views like God's hand, and he also talks about having wings. 
and, and all these things, because we cannot even fathom God. So he gives us cells, and I always anthropomorphisms. He, he gives human characteristics for our benefit and of understanding. As we mentioned, when he came down on Mount Sinai, they used lightning, thunder, and all these sounds. That wasn't the actual thing that happened. That's all we can comprehend. And so God condescends to us, and so we can understand it. Um, what about the daily life component? If God is expecting Israel to remember and think of him in every component of life, how does that apply to us? It's the same thing. See, you'll know a lot about your worship on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday by how you live your life. And I think that the, the weightiness of the application sometimes comes down, because I'll be honest with you, I can get pretty prepped up for Sunday. My whole week centers around that, right? And you can work your way, and all of us can. We can build to the momentous occasion, and th there is purpose behind that, the Day of Atonement. But what about the everyday sacrifice? Well, that's what we see in Scripture as well. We see these gifted people being gifted by God to, to use for His service. And so I hope that as you see what I consider a lot, a lot of words, a lot of different sizes, and I said I wish I could have got, spent more time, but we have two more sessions and we've got to finish Exodus uh, I didn't want to carry that all the way to the fall. But read through that. Remind yourself of what's there. And you start seeing the precision of God and, and start seeing what God is trying to say. And just as you walk into the courtyard, see the degrees of separation, see the different components, see the different rules. And instead of saying, man, this is a weird game that God's playing, recognize that God's doing this on purpose to drive the nation of Israel to recognize he is not like any other, is not even in the same ballpark, is no comparison, because there are no other gods. They're all fakes to him. And that plays to us as well. We're not God. He's only God.